Well, if you look around the room right now, you'll notice that we are not a uniform group of people. We never have been. Uh, as Mandy and I have recounted over the years, uh, we've had probably around 30 different nationalities represented uh, in our church uh, over the years. Uh, we've had some really good fellowship meals uh, in that time as well with all those different uh, ethnicities, all those different cultures coming together uh, to share a meal with one another. It's, it's been fantastic. We, we've had... Uh, we've had top-level uh, consultants, uh, nationally renowned consultants, and we've had window washers. Uh, we've had men and women, we've had old uh, and young, we've had rich, and we've had poor. And you know what? We are the better because of it. We are better because of that diversity. You know, uniformity is oftentimes easier, but it's seldom better. Uh, John Stott, when I was looking over this text and a few commentators, I was reading John Stott's commentary, and I really liked this, I really liked what he said here. He said, the vision that we've been given of the church triumphant, as we look in Revelation chapter 7, every nation, tribe, tongue, family, worshiping. Uh, the Lord Jesus. As we've been given that vision of the church triumphant, it is a company drawn from every nation, tribe, people, and language who are all singing God's praises in unison. So we must declare that a homogenous church is a defective church, which must work penitently and perseveringly towards heterogeneity. So in other words, if we look at the end and what God is going to do in the end, if our church is all this, made up of people that are all the same, then we might have to ask some hard questions. So uniformity is easy because everybody's the same, but I don't think it's better. I love the fact that we're not all the same, even though, if I'm honest, that's been one of the most difficult challenges of our ministry over the years is managing different cultures and different people. But you know what? Let's be honest. Sometimes things that aren't easy are still better, aren't they? And yet, how easy is it for us to devalue one another because of our differences? How easy is it for us to look around and think that God is doing less in and through one person or the other just because of their skin color or the job they hold or their age or their sex? Now listen, my hope today is that we would leave this place excited about diversity and being a diverse people. Because if we believe that God is sovereign in putting his people together in churches and in places in order to be uh, a witness to the communities around them, then we have to believe that God has sovereignly placed each of us with our differences in this place together in order to accomplish his person, a purpose. 
united behind, uh, united together behind following Jesus and reaching our city with the gospel. Well, Romans 16, there, there are a few things maybe that inspire less confidence than reading a list of names. <laughs> uh, it's almost like reading uh, Joshua's account of the, the division of the land when they come into the promised land, right? You have locations and this tribe gets this. And it's a list of names, isn't it? You, you, you probably, I mean, let's be honest, you, you probably, when you get to Romans 16 in your devotionals, in your devotions, you, you probably skim past it and move on to 1 Corinthians or somewhere, uh, whatever's next. I mean, it's just a bunch of names, isn't it? Well, not exactly. Not exactly. It's what those names represent collectively that I think gives this section its power. Uh, Paul is going to start the text with a commendation, and then he's going to move into greetings, and he's going to greet a whole lot of people. And then he's going to issue a warning, uh, and then at the end, he's going to send greetings from himself and the people that are with him in Corinth as he's writing the letter. He even gives the, uh, he even gives the actual person who's writing the, the words that Paul is saying uh, a chance to say hello, Tertius, there at the end. But I think there's something here that we can glean. Obviously, we can't actually greet these people, but I think there's something that we see here if we have eyes to see. I think there's a a treasure uh, in these names that God wants to use. So I want to make some observations of the text and then draw some conclusions based on what I think Paul is, is doing here. There is a diversity of people here in this text that if we see it, it should look familiar to us. And encourage us. So let's consider this section as we think about how we act in unity in the absence of uniformity. How we act in unity in the absence of uniformity. Well, again, Paul is going to greet a collection of believers in this church in Rome who are united in their diversity. This is what we see in those first 16 verses. And so in those verses, Paul is going to name 26 different individuals. Uh, He's going to single out two families or or groups of uh, people associated with a particular family. And he's going to name at least three, uh, greet at least three small groups or house churches that are there in the city of Rome. And I want you to notice the diversity of people that he greets and names. First, you see men and women. Now listen, Paul gets a bad rap these days for the way that he thinks about women, but understand that in first century Rome, Paul is revolutionary in terms of the way that he values women and their contribution to ministry. And that comes out in in these verses. Uh, he's, He's revolutionary. This was unheard of. In first century Roman culture, he singles out nine women among this list of, of 26 people. He begins in verse, uh, verses 1 and 2 with a woman uh, who is not in Rome, uh, but is from Corinth, in the Corinth area, a woman named Phoebe. And Paul's going to elevate Phoebe and, and her ministry. Uh, look at what he says. He's going to sandwich two requests between two commendations of Phoebe and her ministry. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, 
a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she's been a patron of many and of myself as well. Uh, Phoebe is from Corinth. She's actually from Centria, which is a, a few kilometers away from Corinth. And, and Phoebe is probably the person who is delivering this letter to the church in Rome. In fact, she's probably the one who's reading the letter aloud uh, in the church when it is, is delivered. She's called a sister in the Lord. And then she's called a servant. And then she's called a patron. Think uh, supporter uh, in that instance. Now, the word servant, where Paul says in verse 1, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria. Uh, that word servant there, it could mean that she's a leader or the pastor. It's this, that word servant gets used in that way in some instances. I don't think that's the best way for us to consider it. Uh, it could also just be a general use of the word servant, like any of us might be uh, a servant. That, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, if you have the ESV, that's the way the ESV translates it. If you have an older version of the NIV, it translates it that way as well. Uh, but it could also be a more technical term, uh, deacon or deaconess. Now, if you have the newer version of the NIV, it translates it as deacon or deaconess. And in fact, in the ESV, there's a note. Because it's ambiguous, we don't know exactly how Paul is characterizing Phoebe. So the translators that put together those English versions, as they wrestle with it, they have to make a decision. But when they put a, a note in the margin that says there's another possibility, it means that they're not sure. So Paul could be saying that Phoebe is just a general servant in the church, or it could be that he's saying that she is a, a deacon or a deaconess uh, in the church. I, I think that's the most likely way that, I think that's most likely what he's doing there, that he's saying that she has the office of deacon uh, in this church in Corinth or in, in Centria, which is near Corinth. In 1 Timothy and Titus, the term servant is, is also uh, ambiguous, but I, I think there it establishes an office in the church of deacon or deaconess. Now, these are officially appointed servants within a local church uh, who work under the authority of elders in support ministry roles. So they, they work in uh, maybe care ministry or financial ministry. Uh, we see it kind of established in Acts chapter 6, where these people relieved the apostles by taking on some support roles uh, within the churches. Uh, today we might think about a, a, a parking ministry or a technology ministry or, or some kind of hospitality ministry. So in the, in the New Testament, it seems to me that, that leadership in churches is, uh, is entrusted and placed in the hands of a, a plurality of male elders. And so a congregation will cede some of their authority to a group of elders who will have spiritual authority 
and offer leadership and teaching to the church. Now, if that's what a church practices, which that's what we practice, then there, there seems to be no reason why, uh, why deaconesses can't serve alongside deacons as officially sanctioned servants in the church. And now we don't know uh, for sure, but, but I think that's how Phoebe is functioning here as Paul commends her uh, as a servant. But she's also a, a patron or a, a benefactor, or uh, some translations say a great help to the Apostle Paul. She's most likely a wealthy woman uh, who has, through her generosity, sustained both the church that's there in Corinth as well as Paul's ministry. She's been a, a supporter uh, to them in a variety of ways. The bottom line in terms of Paul's commendation of her is that she is an important person in the church. So much so that Paul seems to entrust her with this letter. And that's no small thing in this day where reputation mattered. And, and, and who, was, uh, who was behind you uh, opened doors. And so it's on that basis that Paul then uses his apostolic position to call them to accept her to welcome her as she comes, and then to help her in whatever way she might need as she is conducting business or whatever she's doing uh, in Rome. They are to give her hospitality and assistance because Paul has said she is legitimate. She is the real deal, the real thing. It's like you might carry a reference letter with you uh, to a potential employer or to a church in a new area, so that someone that they might know and respect can vouch for you and say, hey, you need, to, uh, you need to listen to what this person says. You need to treat them as you would treat me. And that's how Paul is treating Phoebe. So again, Phoebe wasn't part of this church in Rome, but Paul elevates her so that when she appears in Rome, they might respect her and what she brings with her. But within the greetings, we see first and foremost in verse 3, Prisca and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, they are in this particular church in Rome. They are Jewish. Uh, they're probably wealthy, uh, a wealthy husband and wife team who helped Paul tremendously in his ministry in Corinth. And in Ephesus. If you go back and read Acts chapter 18 and 19, we see uh, that Priscilla and Aquila are, are in Rome and they leave Rome in AD 49 when Claudius, the emperor, uh, when he kicks all of the Jews out of the city of Rome. Priscilla and Aquila leave Rome with the rest of the Jews and they end up in Corinth uh, and they become friends of Paul. Uh, they journey then uh, in Acts chapter, uh, or, or later in 18, they journey with Paul to Ephesus where they help him there in his ministry in Ephesus. Uh, they disciple a man named Apollos uh, who, is, uh, who is held up as one of those in the book of Acts who does a great ministry. They help disciple him. And in 1 Corinthians 16, we see that they hosted a church in their house uh, in Ephesus. So they were, they were very important. Uh, they were there uh, in Ephesus for some time. 
Uh, they're probably instrumental. Remember, when, at, when Paul is in Ephesus, he starts a riot, <laughs> or, or there's a riot that starts because of, of his ministry in that community. And uh, Priscilla and Aquila are, are possibly some of the ones that actually save his life in helping him in that. Uh, Paul says that in verse 4, that they risk their necks for my life. Uh, so, so they are very, very important and dear <clears throat> to the Apostle Paul. And they do that before returning to Rome, probably with the rest or, or many of the other Jews in AD 54 when Claudius dies and that edict is lifted, these Jews come back in. And remember from the book of Romans, uh, the Jews coming back in is what has in some ways created some of the tension. Because now you have these Jews coming back into what had been now a Gentile, predominantly Gentile church. So Priscilla and Aquila probably return in AD 54 where they now host a church in their home again in Rome. Verse 5, uh, greet the church that's in their house. So Priscilla and Aquila, uh, husband and wife, are, are incredibly uh, important in the ministry here. Uh, and we don't know why, this is interesting, but we don't know why, but most of the time, I think every time but once, when, they are, when they're mentioned together, Priscilla is always mentioned first. It's not Aquila and Priscilla, except one time it's Priscilla and Aquila, right? So she is, and they are very important to Paul in his ministry. If we look down the list, <clears throat> you, you see another couple, Andronicus and Junia. Andronicus and Junia. It's probably another husband and wife team. Uh, Junia could be a shortened form of a male name, but it's most likely a female name. So this is probably another husband and wife team. And, and look, at what Paul, uh, look at what Paul says about them in verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles. They're well known to the apostles. Now, that could be they are well known to the apostles. In other words, they have a reputation uh, among the apostles as workers. Or it could mean that they are outstanding among the apostles. And if it's the latter then it seems to be that they are some kind of missionaries or church planters. Uh, apostles in a, with a little a were people who would go out into uncharted areas to share the gospel and plant churches. And I think that's probably what we see, that this is a husband and wife team who have gone out in ministry, in church planting ministry, and they are well respected and outstanding among those that have done that. Paul is holding up this team, husband-wife team, for their ministry. So it seems like, anyway, we, we don't know for certain, but it seems like they're missionaries and they're good ones in Paul's estimation. There's other ladies mentioned specifically in the list. Mary, uh, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis. And Paul says about them that they, uh, that they worked hard. They strongly exerted themselves for the gospel. Possibly meaning that they are missionaries in some way as well, or evangelists uh, within the area. So there's men and women that are mentioned in these greetings 
uh, that Paul gives. There's Jew and Gentile mentioned. There's 18 Greek names on the list, which possibly indicates that they're Gentiles. You could take a Greek name if you weren't a, uh, if you weren't a Greek or a Roman. You, you could take a, another name, but, but at least some of those are, are Gentile uh, in, their, uh, in their ethnicity. As well as Paul names uh, seven different people who are Jewish. He calls several of them his kinsmen, right? They are fellow Jews. Now we see rich and poor uh, in the list. There's common slave names in the list. So Ampliatus or Urbanus, Hermes, um, Philologus, which is that's a hard name to say. <laughs> Uh, and Julia, those are common slave names in that day. And, and so perhaps these are, uh, are, are slaves within, uh, within households. And you have that alongside names like Aristobulus uh, and Narcissus. Uh, Aristobulus historically was a, a grandson of Herod, uh, a very prominent person. And while Aristobulus was probably dead by this time, his household is one of the ones that's greeted uh, by Paul in this chapter. The same with Narcissus. Same with Narcissus. Uh, again, not to mention Priscilla and Aquila, who were, were most likely wealthy. Uh, to have a house that was big enough to host people in it in that day meant that you were wealthy. And the way that Paul describes, their, or way that we see their ministry described in Acts, it seems that they were wealthy. Uh, as well. Paul, in what he has written and in his command here to greet, expects that there's to be an intimate connection between all these different diverse people. Remember, think back to Romans 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. And we saw there this call for unity in spite of differences and in spite of backgrounds. We called, or Paul called us to, to love, that that would be the, the chief value and characteristic among this particular church. This is a, a mixed church. As John Stott points out, membership wasn't limited to a certain sex or a certain race uh, or, or social class. It wasn't as if they divided up all their small groups. Okay, you Gentile, the Gentile small group is over here. Uh, the Jewish home church is over here. Uh, the, the rich one is over here. No, because that would defeat the purpose of what Paul said in chapters 14 and 15. Where he said, despite your differences, you are to, to be intimately connected with one another in love. Paul gives, uh, the, the instruction that Paul gives to respecting their differences of opinion point us to this intimate connection that Paul called them to have. He calls them to, to unity and love even in their diversity. So they can't use their diversity, their differences, to devalue one another. And that comes out in the fact that Paul instructs them to greet those that he's named. This isn't so much Paul saying, you know what, I just want to say hello to, I want to give a shout out to these different people. Paul is commanding them to greet one another, to, to, to greet these people in Paul's name. This is a, a way of publicly commending these people. 
It's a way of encouraging them to see the value in one another that Paul sees in these people. This is what Paul wants uh, from them, this spirit of warmness. And you see that in verse 16. There obviously wasn't COVID in the Roman church because he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. There's to be this intimate connection with one another. Today, you know, we would say, greet one another with a fist bump or an elbow bump. It used to be in the past, greet one another with a handshake or a hug, right? But now it's whatever it is now. I don't know, your foot tap or whatever. But, but there's to be a spirit of warmness and intimacy amongst this diverse group of people. But again, Paul isn't just out to greet them because he inserts this warning uh, in these later verses. He, he wants them and us to, to, to be about something bigger together. And so his instruction to them in the form of a warning, and, and this is for all of God's people, his instruction to them is to pursue gospel truth and life as they continue looking forward, strengthened by God's grace. He appeals to them to keep pursuing what is right and true in keeping with the gospel they've believed. Um, they are generally warned here in verses 17 and 18. They're generally warned to watch out for those who will come into their community and try to distract them from the gospel that Paul has preached. They are to watch out for those who would introduce divisions and selfishly. So he says in verse 17, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They're to watch out for those who would introduce divisions by preaching a, a different doctrine. And they would do this they do this by rejecting that, uh, that teaching, any teaching that doesn't adhere to the, to the gospel. Paul wants them to stay true to the gospel that they have received, to stay true to it. Indeed, he wants them to continue in obedience as well as they grow in their pursuit of what's right. He says in verse 19, your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. He wants them to grow in their discernment, to excel in doing good and to fall short in doing evil. And this they are to do with confidence. They're to do it with confidence in the gospel's promised result as they're strengthened by grace. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This striving to pursue what is right and true is only temporary, isn't it? Well, one day we won't have that struggle. So, so we, we struggle now, but we trust that God will soon vindicate our faith. That he will crush Satan and that there will be no more struggle. That's what we look forward to. 
Remember, just as an aside, that day, of, uh, that day of deliverance that we look forward to for believers is a day of great joy. For non-believers, it's a day of judgment. Because what we see in Revelation is that the fate of Satan, when he is crushed, is the same fate that non-believers receive as they are judged. And so listen, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you haven't placed your trust in him. That this, this promise of deliverance that God encourages this church with is a promise of judgment. And so the call is there to repent and turn and trust in Jesus while there is still time. While there's still time. In the meantime, It is God's grace, His enabling presence that provides us the strength to persevere as we await that day. So how do we live then for impact as a gospel community that is united in diversity? Well, our call is to be a compelling example of gospel love and unity in our diversity to the community around us. And we do that by respecting the value that each person brings in their diversity. Remember, there's no statues erected for for these people. Uh, These are normal people. These are normal people that are working hard for the gospel within the context of this local church and who are being commended for it. These are regular people. You know, you can't go see a statue of Tryphena or Rufus, right? We don't even know who these people are apart from their names. But these people made a difference. And Paul holds them up as exemplary. And so one thing we can do is to say thank you to one another as we recognize the ways that people are using their giftedness. And listen, at the risk of not being able to, to, to name everybody, you, you know, I mean, it is important that we recognize people who give and serve in our diversity here in our church. People like Lulu, who runs our hospitality sector over there. Uh, you know, people, uh, people who teach in Sunday school. Uh, people who are involved uh, up here at the front, Adam or, or Parig uh, or, or, or Will, people that are involved behind the scenes, people that greet Mark, you know, he always greets you outside, uh, Elaine, uh, Russ and Denise back there working the, 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 the video. Uh, listen, let me just say, if you've been encouraged at all during the last 18 months or two years by the lockdown or the live stream, you understand that's Russ and Denise that figured that out and got it going and run it. So if you've been encouraged, don't look at me. You, you need to thank them because they're the ones that have, have done that. And there's so many other people that I could name. But we are a church that is united in our diversity and, and, and that for the sake of the gospel. And so we value one another. We say thank you to one another. We carry one another when we're tempted to give up or to give in to false belief. It's hard to stand firm, isn't it, against a a culture uh, of error that wants to lead us in a different direction away from the gospel. 
And so we carry one another. We help one another. Adam talked last week about striving in prayer for one another. That we might persevere together. Because it's tempting to give up or to give in to what is much easier. And so we want to help protect one another. Help protect one another. And we hold each other accountable to living as God has called us to live. Remember that we've been instructed to respect differences of opinion in matters that are indifferent. That was chapter 14, chapters 14 and 15. But there are moral matters to which we must hold one another accountable. There are things that are clearly right and clearly wrong in Scripture. And so we hold each other accountable to being wise in what is good and innocent as to what is evil. First, adultery is always wrong. And in the face of it, we must call it what it is. It is sin, greed, and drunkenness, and idolatry. They're not morally ambiguous. And so we must take responsibility to help one another remain innocent in evil. And we do that in love. We do that understanding that we are fallen ourselves and that we are just as susceptible to following after things that we shouldn't. And all this, all this we do is we are strengthened by the promise of His certain future. The enabling power of His presence with us, His grace. Again, as Adam said last week, this is where we strive together in prayer in order that we might stand firm as lights in this dark world. I hope you see the value that gets placed here by Paul in this chapter on unity and diversity. It's something that we have to work for and strive for, for sure. But it's something that honors God. And gets used by him to draw others to himself. So let's celebrate our diversity. Even as we strive for unity. And pray that God would leverage our community of faith. For the sake of reaching the people that are around us. Because that's what he wants to do. Let's pray together. Father you are good. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the way that you hold up through the the writers of of your word, Father. The way that you hold up normal people that you use. In the diversity of their... Uh, ethnicities or giftedness or personalities, whatever, Father, that you use those normal people to accomplish your purpose. And so we pray that for us today, that you might use the diversity that is here among us, that you might use us, Father, as salt and light as ambassadors, as, uh, as ones who will encourage one another as we look to see the community around us reached for Christ. We thank you, Father, for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.